Just move the ice cream up there a bit higher. A beautiful flavour that Kate's created. Uh, it's funny when people misread things, isn't it? Rejoice with those who are weeping. Wouldn't that be fitting well with our series on the fruit of the Spirit? And, you know, we're talking about loving one another and someone's weeping and we're like, <laughs> That's why it's always good, even when I'm speaking, follow along in the Bible to make sure that you're trusting what comes out of there rather than what comes out of here because what comes out of here isn't always correct. Let's open up in prayer as we look to God, as we look to his word. Heavenly Father, I am just a weak vessel. There is nothing uh, special about any particular person who delivers a sermon. What makes a sermon uh, a living encounter is the fact that it is your living and breathing word. Lord, we pray that uh, as we look to continue in the fruit of the Spirit, and we're looking at peace this morning, that we would have the inner testimony of your Holy Spirit revealing your word, convicting us, encouraging us, helping us to stand firmly on your promises. Lord, I don't pray to have anything of worth to offer of my own. We pray that you would be pleased uh, to work through me and to, for your word to be proclaimed faithfully this morning. Uh, keep me from saying things that are in error. And Lord, help us to not only hear, uh, but to respond to your truth and for it to achieve that purpose to make us more like Christ. And we ask in his name, amen. So we have been going through a series on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we're now up to the fifth in that series. Up until this point in time, I have been giving a bit of an overview of all of the series up until now, but I realise come sermon number 11, that's going to become a little bit lengthy. So I'm not going to do a recap any, any further or not an entire week-by-week week recap. But it is worth, particularly when we have people visiting, just covering some of the basics. And in particular, what do we mean when we're talking about fruit of the Spirit? The definition that we roughly landed on is what we mean when we're referring to fruit of the Spirit or f- spiritual fruit is this. The fruit of the Spirit or spiritual fruit is any transformation enabled by the Spirit in the life of a Spirit-led believer to bring about Christ-likeness in thoughts, attitudes and actions. So it's something produced by the work of the Spirit in the life of a Spirit-led believer, so not just something he's doing in everyone, but particularly in a believer and one who is trusting and walking by, keeping in step with the Spirit, in order to bring about Christ-likeness in thoughts, attitudes and actions. Throughout the series we've seen there's two aspects to this. One, that we've seen that it is the fruit is responsible who actually does the enabling and produces the fruit. But on the other hand, we've also seen that we are actually called to and commanded to bear fruit. That we're called responsible. One of the analogies that we've used throughout the series is the idea of if you want apples in your backyard, your primary pursuit isn't apples. Your primary pursuit is getting an apple tree, planting it and looking after the tree. In the same sense, when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit or the, the, spirit, the fruit that the Spirit produces, the primary pursuit isn't the fruit itself, but rather a deep, close, personal relationship with God and the fruit is the result which abounds from that. One of the other things we've noted is that it doesn't talk about the fruits of the Spirit. 
but rather it talks about the fruit singular of the Spirit, as in the fruit or the evidence or the outworking of the Spirit in the life of someone trusting and walking by the Spirit is consisting in all of these things and more, as we see that the list in Galatians 5 says, and things such as these. While we've seen that there's one fruit that's expected in all believers, the other thing we've seen a number of occasions is that all of us are equally equipped in order to bear fruit. We've referred to 2 Peter 1.3 a number of times. We have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. But today in particular, we're going to focus on peace. Now, it's something we hear a lot about, isn't it? Countries seeking peace with one another. Companies embroiled in some sort of battle seeking to find some way to find peace. Families trying to find peace. Governments spending lots of money hoping to achieve peace. But all the ways in which we tend to hear it used, we think of peace as being the absence of hardship or conflict. But is that what the Bible means? When the Bible talks about peace, is it just talking about the absence of trouble, conflict and friction? Because if that was the case, the fruit of peace would be somehow some spirit-enabled thing that we would have no troubles, no conflict and no tension in our life. And as I look through the Bible, that just doesn't fit, does it? Even Jesus didn't leave a life that was free from friction and trouble, did he? As attractive as that option may be, that's not the way the Bible uses the word peace. The way the Bible speaks of peace and peace in the life of God's people isn't so much the absence of trouble, but the presence of God's blessing and particularly that wholeness in right relationship with him and right relationship with others. Throughout this today, we'll see there's a number of comparisons between joy that we looked at last week and peace. We saw that joy is not something that is dependent upon our circumstances. The fruit of joy, because we're called to rejoice in the Lord who is unchanging, his character, his purposes, his promises are always the same. We can rejoice in the Lord in our good days and in our bad days because he's unchanging. We'll see the same can be said with regards to peace. That true biblical peace is not dependent upon the circumstances we find ourselves in. The three sections we're going to look at is sort of a structure for today. First, we're going to look at peace with God. Secondly, the one I didn't know what to call, I had inner peace or self-peace, although they all sound a bit too hippie, but you know, we'll try and explain it a little bit more when we get there. And thirdly, peace with others. But firstly, peace with God. Now, often you hear people say, God is a good and loving God. Therefore, we must presume that if we're generally a nice person, that somehow we must be automatically at peace with God. But do we naturally have peace with God? As I read through the scriptures, that's not the way the Bible describes our default position with God that we are somehow, by default, by being born into the world, that we are somehow at peace with God. On the other hand, the Bible actually describes us and our human nature in this way. It says, we were born rebellious. We've inherited that sin nature from Adam, that sin nature that says, I don't want to follow God, I want to decide for myself what I'm going to do. I'm the one that calls the shots, I'm the ultimate authority, not God. 
That's our natural condition. We don't care for him and we don't have peace with God. Our natural state, according to Ephesians 2, it says, we were by nature children of wrath. That's not a sign of peace. Wrath is very much the opposite. Romans 3.23, we're told all have sinned. And when we hear that word sin, don't just think like some atrocious, wicked, particular act. Sin at the core of it is failing to honour God as God and giving him thanks. Sin is not just individual acts. They're the expression of an attitude that says, I'm not going to honour God rightly as my right God and ruler. In Romans 5, Paul gives this description of our condition before we were saved. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So for all who have come to faith in Christ, who have experienced his salvation, says, we were enemies. That was our position. Because if God's plan as our creator is a rightful ruler, the one to whom we belong, who it is right to serve, and everything he has given to us is for our good, when we choose to say, no, I don't want that, I'm going to call the shots, I'm going to do what I want, we are living as enemies of God. So whether we feel like we're enemies or not, that is our position. I remember certainly as a young fellow who certainly wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't have considered myself an enemy of God. It didn't change the fact that I was. I think I've got no problem with God, he's got no problem with me. But our truth of who God is and who we are isn't based upon our opinion. The one who made us and the one who's revealed himself to us has said this is who we are, this is our position. So if we are naturally enemies of God, how do we obtain peace? Well, that very same chapter at the beginning has these words to say. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So previously we didn't have peace with God because we were living as enemies, doing our own thing, just not giving him the honour as God as he should deserve, giving him thanks. We were by nature objects of wrath. But it says we can have peace with God. We are justified by faith. Now this term justified is a legal term. It means that one has legally declared somebody right. Remember, God is the one who is the judge of all. God is the one who sees everything we've ever said, everything we've ever thought, anything we've ever done, and everything we will do in the future. And says, by faith, and not just some hairy fairy, just faith belief of something, but specifically by faith in that Jesus Christ has come into the world, who on the cross paid the price for sin, not for his sin, he didn't do any, but he stood there as a substitute, bearing the price of death for our sin on our behalf, and by faith as we turn to him, call to him for repentance, for forgiveness of sins and trusting that his punishment was satisfactory for ours, we are justified by faith in that, declared right by God, by the one who is judged, and we now have peace with God. Because what kept us away from God, what brought about hostility, made us by nature children of wrath, was our sin. 
And on that cross, Jesus dealt with our sin in its entirety. So we can have peace with God. But while I speak about that as the first place, I think when Galatians is speaking about a fruit of the Spirit, it's, and when it talks about specifically about peace, I don't think it's actually referring specifically to peace with God. Because if peace with God comes at the point that we enter salvation, that we trust in him, that we trust in his death and resurrection, this letter was written to people who had already come to that point in time. And if you're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit comes into the life of someone at the moment they believe, Ephesians 1.13. So obviously these people already have the Spirit, so they have come to a point of being at peace with God. But what we have seen throughout the letter, and as we see through the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, most of these speak about interpersonal relationships. This was a church that wasn't particularly well known for good interpersonal relationships. That doesn't mean I should have left the first one out, because our peace with God, which brings about a total transformation about our identity and changes completely how we now relate to God and how we relate to others, is a necessary foundation for the other two. Second one we're going to look at, they oddly titled Inner Peace, Peace Within, whatever you want to call it that doesn't sound too hippie-ish. Because it can sound a little bit like he's somewhere away sipping on green tea, listening to Enya. We had a discussion about it. This is the prayer meeting. I was trying to find a Queensland location. We, some said Sunshine Case. We ended up settling with Byron Bay as being a good example. But we can have a peace within because the very thing that we were deepest slavery to and held us hostile was our sin and if we have come to faith in Christ, that has been decisively dealt with. Not only that, but now we have relationship with the Almighty God who has wonderful promises both for us in our life here but also all into eternity. Just like joy that we looked at last week, this experience of peace is not affected by hardship. And the scripture speaks about a peace which transcends all understanding. Some people think that peace and, and trouble can't go together. Jesus did. Have a look in John 16.33. It says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So right at a time when he promises, you're going to have hard times in this life, he says, I've spoken these things that you might have peace. And he says, why? Why? Because the world in which you live, I have overcome. There is no greater, there's nothing that can come against you that I have not overcome, says Jesus. So yes, he does say, we will have difficulties. It's a dangerous teaching when someone says that when you come to Christ, when you become a Christian, you won't have any difficulty. You'll have no hardship I've seen some very hurt people who've been told that. Because they experience what every other Christian experiences, life doesn't become perfect when you become a Christian. And if the person who led them to Christ told them that, they think, maybe I'm not a Christian, because look, hard, hard things are going on. Jesus promised in this life we will have hardship. We live in a broken world, stained by sin. But any hardship that does come, comes with the permissive will of God, who, as we've seen in Romans 8, 28, works all things, not just the good things, 
all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. And the next verse we've seen tells us what that purpose is. And that purpose was in, in choosing us before the creation of the world was to make us and conform us to the image of his son. So we can have peace in the midst of all circumstances because God says, I've overcome the world. I am working even the hard things for your benefit, for that good purpose of making us more like Christ, which should be the desire of all of our hearts. And also in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he promises, I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. God is intimately involved with little details of our life. He knows what's going on. To highlight that point, Jesus... I didn't put it Put it this way. In Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. But even the hairs of your head have been numbered. Fear not, therefore, are you not of more value than many sparrows? Are you? Do you think you're a little bit more valuable to God than a couple of sparrows? And if he takes deep, intimate interest in theirs, how much more those whom he paid the price of the death of his own son in order to secure their salvation? The one to whom we belong. This is how he's described in Ephesians. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just a reminder who you belong to. He is above all authority. There is no one who has more power, more authority than Jesus Christ who has brought you into relationship with him. So regardless of what could potentially come towards you, think, is this thing more powerful? Is this greater than Christ? And Paul has gone to extensive detail there in Ephesians to make that clear. No, there is nothing higher. But the thing is, we don't always experience priests, do we? What's wrong with this? We're going to look at two texts which we had a bit of a look at over a number of weeks. Again, they're not supposed to have a line through them. It's supposed to be an underline, just the way the, the programs put it through that way. Firstly, in Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And similar in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now both those passages talk about bring your prayers to God. Remember, the one who is working all things for your good, the one who cares more about you than, than sparrows, the one who is working all things, even the hard things, to make you more like Christ. The one who is seated above every rule and authority. The one who cares for you. The one who's not going to allow us to be tempted to anything beyond what we can handle. If we genuinely believed and genuinely trusted every one of those points, we would never be unsettled. Not if we just genuinely believed intellectually we could answer it in a question, 
But if we genuinely believed in such a way that we lived by it, we would never be shaken. Truth is, we get anxious. We don't always feel at peace. Because that command, be anxious about nothing, is so much easier to recite, to memorise, than it is to actually do it. I think there are two main reasons why we don't experience the peace that we're designed to have. One is that we don't believe and trust perfectly, which we don't. And secondly, sometimes because we misunderstand what Philippians 4, 6 and 7 actually promises. First, to say, sometimes our peace is hindered by compromised or imperfect belief. Now, if we believe that God was in control of all things, that he's above all authority, that he's working all things, good and bad, for our good purpose in making us like Christ, to bring nothing to tempt us that we cannot handle, we would have peace. But what our natural reaction is, when we can't see how, or the end result, how God is going to work that for good, when we don't see the end goal, we start to worry, don't we? Because when we can't see where it's headed, it's outside of our control and that freaks us out. The funny thing is, even while we're curled in a little ball, all worried about something, God's still doing that thing, working about his good purposes to make us more like Christ. I used a quote from A.W. Tozer a number of weeks ago. He says, The person who comes to the right view of God is immediately relieved of a thousand temporal problems. It is. If you rightly recognise who God is and who we are, as to he has revealed himself to us in his word, we would be relieved of whole sorts of different things that we spend time worrying about. But our naturally we worry about the things that we can't fix or we can't see how it's going to come to a good ending. When we do that, we basically say, if I can't fix it, God can't. We don't fully trust God at his word. Secondly, sometimes we just misunderstand what Philippians 4, 6-7 actually promises. Where he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Some people read that and they think, oh, this verse is telling me if I'm worried and I pray to God, whatever is worrying me will disappear. Whatever hardship I'm experiencing, God promises me he's going to get rid of it. That verse doesn't say that anywhere. The verse never promises that the thing that is causing your anxiety, he will take away. The only thing it promises is when you bring those things with supplication and thanksgiving before God, the one who is above all authority, the one who is working all things for your good, when you are trusting in him, it says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So whatever is causing the difficulty, he may take away, he may not. But he promises when you trust him in prayer and you come before him with thanksgiving, if you are genuinely trusting that he is good, that he is all-powerful, that he is working these things for good, even when you can't see that end result, he promises the very peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. It speaks of being a peace which surpasses all understanding. 
Like if, if the answer was that you come before God in prayer and boom, he just takes it away, that doesn't surpass understanding, does it? If you all of a sudden feel better when hardships disappear, that, that's just common sense. What surpasses understanding is when you have a settled peace, even when you don't see a reason why you should. Because your faith is in a God who has promised to work all things, who is above all rule authority, who will bring nothing to tempt you beyond what you can handle. That surpasses understanding. To give you a little illustration of what that looks like, a good friend of mine, Vin Thomas, back in America, his dad passed away with cancer a number of years ago and I spoke to him when he was told he had a month left to live. And I said, Bruce, how can I pray for you? Bruce's answer was, pray for my family. There's nothing but good ahead for me. Now, Bruce wasn't on, on medication and totally deluded, thinking, oh, yeah, these next, next month is going to be sweet, it's all going to be happy, nothing's going to be uncomfortable. He realised that his remaining four weeks were going to be hard, there was going to be sadness, there was going to be pain, there was going to be discomfort. But he had a trust in God and he knew what was coming before him and what was happening in those next four weeks mattered little. What he cared about is he said, pray for my family. They are going to hurt when I'm gone. Now, while we can experience peace in the middle of hardship, an equally wrong emphasis, some people think that you have to suffer in order to experience peace. And the Bible certainly doesn't tell you that you must pursue suffering in any sense whatsoever. We've already looked at verses 6 to 7 of 1 Peter chapter 5, but it actually tells us a little bit more about something that hinders our peace. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's where we've read up until now. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So not only does he say, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you, he says, watch out. Because the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Now the devil's name basically means slanderer or accuser. Something he's been very good at right from the beginning. To slander and accuse both God and undermine his character but also to slander and accuse you. And in the midst of your anxiety and your worries which you're bringing before God who cares for you, he's equally going to be working on the opposite side, putting thoughts in your mind saying, if God really cared about you, you wouldn't be experiencing this, would you? If God really cared about you, he would have taken this away, wouldn't he? See how they work at complete opposites? We're told to come before him with thanksgiving and prayer, trusting that he's above all things. My experience of having hardship in my life doesn't change whether or not God loves me. But Peter's advice is be watchful, be sober-minded. Resist the devil, stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in what God has said to be true. That he is working all things for your good. Don't go into amusing, entertaining the ideas of, does God really love me when this is going on? Why hasn't he taken it away? Trust in what he has says. 
But he's using all good, all things for your good. That we will have hardship, but he'll use it. Peter's advice is very similar to the advice that James gave us. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See the method he gives you there to resist the devil? He says, draw near to God, submit to God. That is the strongest offence which we have. We've seen already a number of links between joy and peace. One verse that puts them side by side is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So he prays that they would abound in joy and peace and the means by which he says to experience this in believing. Trusting God at his word, trusting God in who he is and what he has promised to us to experience the joy and peace he's promised to us is the means by which we receive it. Our circumstances change, they go up and down, just like joy. They, things can seem different, but even in the midst of the good or in the midst of the difficult, we can experience joy and peace in believing, in hanging on closely to Christ during those times. So that was the inner peace he won. Thirdly and lastly, peace with others. Now we've seen the way the Galatians have responded to one another. We saw the description back in chapter 5 that says they are devouring and backbiting one another. The New Testament says a lot about interpersonal relationships. Even when there's writing to Christians. Because it's hard. Being in relationship with people, either close or distant, is difficult. Yet it also says much about peace in our relationships. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans fourteen nineteen. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Strive for peace with everyone. For those who want definitions of term, everyone means everyone. And for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. First Peter three ten and eleven. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. So at the beginning, you've got Jesus saying that, that there is blessing from God for being a peacemaker. Yet we have these constant commands: pursue peace. Go after it. Strive for it. Make every effort for peace with everyone. It's part of the Christian life. We are called to live at peace with other people. Now, while we are commanded to pursue peace, the Bible never guarantees that we will have peace in all our relationships. Just because you desire to have peace with someone doesn't necessarily mean they're going to desire to have the same. We see the nature of the uncertain results in the verses we had read beforehand. Romans 12 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Notice that bit underlined? If possible, in other words, it's not always going to happen, but as far as it depends upon you, and you're the only part that you can actually have any impact upon, live peaceably with all. I'll define all as being all again. We are called to pursue peace with all, and as far as it depends upon you, in other words, if there's not going to be peace in a relationship between two people, make sure it's not your fault that it isn't. Make sure you've done everything. Like all of the fruit of the Spirit, peace is not something to be exercised only when it seems appropriate or to certain people who seem deserving. We are called to pursue peace with all. Our friends, our enemies, everyone. But there should be, I have to underline should, unfortunately, a difference between pursuing peace with fellow believers and unbelievers. And we're equally called to pursue peace with both because it says to everyone or to all. But if you're in a tense relationship with a fellow believer, you are called to pursue peace. If they're a believer, in theory, they too are called to pursue peace. It should, although unfortunately we all know it doesn't always work this way, if both people are desiring to pursue peace and commanded to pursue peace, it should have a good outcome. Unfortunately, though, we see so much damage done by division amongst believers, don't we? Where one or both refuse to, to adhere to that command to seek peace, to pursue it, because we want something else to happen. We feel like we've been mistreated. We want something in return. They've got to pay for it, we think. But that verse, verse that we read from Romans says, leave it to God who will judge perfectly. When we feel that they need to pay us something back for something that's happened, we basically say, God, not satisfied that what you're going to do is going to be good enough. But when there is division in the church, it misrepresents Christ. It's not just a minor issue as, oh, no, these people are divided in the church. We saw in Philippians, Paul actually in the middle letter calls out two ladies and says, help these two ladies. Because division in the body of Christ is called to be one body, representative of Christ in the world, is a poor representative of Christ. Paul writes to the Colossians, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called into one body, and be thankful. No matter how small or how big, division between two believers is a significant thing that is a poor witness to Christ in the world in which we live. Paul speaks of the church as being a body, consists of many parts who support, care and belong to one another. And in 1 Corinthians 12, to have equal concern to all parts of the body. Jesus too spoke about actively pursuing peace. Back in Matthew 5, he said, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there before the altar and go, First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So here's someone who's come to worship and Jesus says, go solve your problem with your brother. In other words, he thinks it's pretty significant. When two believers are at conflict with one another, he says, I know you've come to worship, but go sort that out first. And if you look in that, you'll notice it doesn't say 
only if you're the person at fault or if the other person's at fault. It says, if your brother has something against you, go sort it out. Be reconciled to him. It doesn't say wait until they're sorry. But if you're aware that there's difficulty between you and someone else, take the initiative, pursue peace. At which point you wonder whether you're going to leave an awkward silence if anyone needs to go take off and have a chat to someone. But when I say things theoretically a difference between pursuing peace with believers and unbelievers, with believers they are equally called to pursue peace as you have, whereas non-believers don't care what God has to say regarding these things. Some of them you'll find will prefer the idea of tension. They like the idea. They don't want to have peace. They like there to be division. But the commands we were given of Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So in concluding, we firstly, we are reminded we have peace with God. We are justified, declared right by the one who is the judge of all. As we enter into faith, trusting what Jesus has done on the cross to pay the price for our sin. We can have peace within self, knowing that in all things we can come before the God who is above all rule and authority, who's working all things for our good, who's not going to bring anything into our life to tempt us beyond what he hasn't provided for us. That we are called to pursue peace with others. As far as it depends on us, pursue peace. And a lack of an experience of peace in any one of those three is a result of our own sin and failing to trust God at his word. We call Eastgate Bible Church. One of the reasons why they put Bible in their title is they realise that the Bible is the way in which God has revealed himself to people. And therefore it is the governing rule of how we live in right relationship with God and right relationship with others. I like the way the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, he says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, it's not normally the way I would conclude a sermon in terms of having memory boosts, but I think it is fitting. If we honestly believe that God has given us his word, that we might be thoroughly equipped in every good work, and he's actually given us things to help us in regards to these things, if we don't actually know what they are, then they're not much help, are they? So let me give you three verses for each of those that we've looked at this morning. With regards to peace with God, if we're wondering whether or not God is somehow still hostile towards us or can't forgive us, be very much reminded, Romans 5.1, therefore since we've been justified, that is declared right by faith, we have peace. Not we will, might, one day in the future. We have peace with God. Regarding peace within self, Philippians 4, 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, not might, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the promise of God. In trusting in him, coming before him in prayer, trusting him at his word, not that he'll take away necessarily the, the problem, but he will provide peace as you trust in him in the middle of whatever's happening. And lastly, as we've seen from Romans 12, 17 and 18, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, 
live peaceably with all. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, sometimes it's confronting when we see how little we we trust you at your word. You've made some wonderful promises toward us and what you've provided for us in our relationship with Christ. Yet so often we fail to experience the fullness of what you've promised us because we don't trust you at your word. There's still that little bit of us that wants to think that, that we're in charge and if we can't do it, that it's out of control and it's something to worry about. Lord, help us to trust that you actually can do everything you say you can do. That you actually are doing those things that you promise us that you are doing for your people. Lord, we know it's hard to, to desire to pursue peace with some people because they're just really difficult. Because sometimes there has been hurt. But we've also been reminded many times of the way that you sought relationship with us while we were still enemies. Help us to live in a way that represents you well. Help us to be obedient to you, not just when it feels good or when it seems like a good idea, but everything you've given to us is for our good. And we give you thanks that you even tell us things that we don't like, knowing that they are for our good. Thank you for your care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.